Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Twitter. We cannot allow Soros, Steyer, and Bloomberg to buy this election. Get out and vote Republican November 6th. Hashtag MAGA. October 23, 2018. Based on the excuse which Kevin McCarthy has provided for his racist, misogynistic, Islamophobic, politically pandering decision to remove Representative Ilhan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, whoever wrote that tweet, which I just read, must also be removed from any position of importance in the House, because if Ilhan Omar tweeted anti-Semitic tropes and took too much time to apologize for them, then whoever tweeted the anti-Semitic trope about Soros and Bloomberg and Steyer, and four years later has yet to apologize for it, is equally self-disqualified. We cannot allow Soros, Steyer, and Bloomberg to buy this election. Tweeted on October 23, 2018 by Congressman Kevin McCarthy. Welcome to the new McCarthyism. You are guilty until proven innocent. He is innocent even when proven guilty. I'm a member of the Foreign Affairs. She said Americans only like Israel because it's all about the Benjamins. And three years later, she says, I didn't know there's a trope when it comes to referring to someone who is Jewish with money. I didn't know there's a trope when it comes to referring to somebody who is Jewish with money. We cannot allow Soros, Steyer, and Bloomberg to buy this election. Kevin McCarthy indeed tweeted that on October 23rd, 2018. 
Then he deleted it on October 24th, 2018. After he deleted it, he claimed the tweet had nothing to do with Bloomberg, Soros, and Steyer being Jewish Americans, then said he deleted it because of his sensitivity to threats against Jewish Americans. Then he reminded his Fox News interviewer that Michael Bloomberg put $54 million into the campaign. It was a statement which contradicted itself about three times in five seconds. It was the statement of a liar. It was the statement of a weasel. It was the statement of an anti-Semite. It was the statement of Kevin McCarthy and the new McCarthyism. Your anti-Semitic trope for which you've apologized gets you kicked off the Foreign Affairs Committee. My anti-Semitic trope, which I've lied about for four years, gets me elected speaker. We do not stop there. McCarthy, playing politics with the world economy by threatening the debt limit, went to the White House and insisted he's not playing politics with the world economy by threatening the debt limit. He implied the president was. And when pushed to name what spending he wanted cut, McCarthy, like every other Republican in each house, could not name anything. Not one program. Not one area. The new McCarthyism. And every week and every day and every hour, they find something new to perform like that about. There is no governing in the Republican Party. There is perpetual martyrdom. There is perpetual victimhood. There is one job in the new McCarthyism and one job only, getting yourself reelected, getting the base angry at something, usually something that does not exist, getting them angrier by emphasizing that if the facts say it does not exist, that's only because Republicans are having their rights violated or they're being canceled or they're being deplatformed. A group of your colleagues took to the floor. They had a special order on DirecTV's deplatforming of Newsmax. And I wanted to ask you, sir, if the House would contemplate hearings on that. You know, I had discussions with a couple members now because it's very concerning to me. Now, Newsmax isn't the first one, OAN as well. And I think America should be able to have a choice in the news they are able to get, a choice in being able to see it. I would hate to see that someone's being kicked off simply because they provide something conservative. So I think it is a place that we should look at. It is implausible that even this idiot McCarthy is so stupid that he does not know the real Newsmax story, but it's either that or he is bald-faced lying. Newsmax was charging DirecTV $0 to carry its product on the DirecTV satellite system. Now it has raised the price from $0 to a reported tens of millions of dollars a year. DirecTV said, well, why would we do that when, when you gave it to it for free and, and you're still charging outlets like Roku $0 to carry your little network? This in the new McCarthyism, merits a congressional hearing with congressmen. This merits political bullying. This merits the interference with the Republican supposedly sacrosanct world of business and the free market. If you want to hold hearings about Newsmax, why not drag this fascist Christopher Ruddy who owns Newsmax in and grill him about price gouging? Price gouging in the fertilizer market. The irony about Kevin McCarthy and his new McCarthyism is that the only thing that happened yesterday that threatens him in the least, 
that could burst his anti-democracy, anti-bipartisan, anti-actually-do-anything credo are eight words he said yesterday in response to Marjorie Trader Greene. The House Oversight Committee was talking about violations of civil rights and the murder of Tyree Nichols. And the first thing Congresswoman Cracker emphasized was that the first five officers who killed Nichols were black, which means it can't be racist. And then she pivoted to something that were the Republicans still actually part of the democratic process in this country and not merely a party that serves as a harbor for insurrection, which coddles fascists. If she had said this under those circumstances, she would have gotten kicked off the committee and kicked out of the House before the hearing was over. There's a woman in this room whose daughter was murdered on January 6th, Ashley Babbitt. And Ashley Babbitt has, there's never been a trial. As a matter of fact, no one has cared about the person that shot and killed her. And and no one in this Congress has really addressed that issue. January 6th committee didn't address it. And I believe that there are many people uh, that came into the Capitol on January 6th whose civil rights... Etc., etc., etc. Sure, Marjorie Taylor Greene defended a terrorist, defended her from a seat on the House Committee on Oversight. But she's rehabilitated now. She's the new Marjorie Taylor Greene. Ask the New York Times. Ask the Washington Post. The new McCarthyism needs many new Richard Nixons and even more apologists in the media. What is amazing is that Kevin McCarthy openly disagreed with Marjorie Trailer Green. One of the first things Marjorie Taylor Greene said from the oversight dais was that Ashley Babbitt was murdered. Do you think Ashley Babbitt was murdered, or do you think the police officer who shot her was doing his job? I think the police officer did his job. The follow-up question? Should Ashley Babbitt and the others who violently invaded the Capitol on January 6th be defended from a committee stage by a member of your party? Well, we don't know because Kevin McCarthy was not asked that because Republicans do not get asked follow-up questions anymore, which is how you will remember. McCarthy almost cried about Ilhan Omar's trope about somebody who is Jewish with money. And nobody, nobody asked him, Mr. Speaker, what about your trope about somebody who is Jewish with money? The new McCarthyism has many things in common with the original version, but as important as any other component is this. It gets the same incompetent, compliant, stenographic Washington press corps in 2023 that Joe McCarthy got in 1953. Remarkably, there was an accidental outbreak of journalism in the Los Angeles Times, Reporters Laura Rosenhall and Sarah Weyer somehow got Bill Barr to speak to them in Sacramento after a conference and respond to the New York Times vivisection of Barr's suppression of the Mueller report and his turning his QAnon-level belief that Trump's Russia conspiracy not only doesn't exist but was fabricated by, I don't know, Lenin. When it comes to Bill Barr, I'm as lost as I was when they made his father the headmaster of my high school. The idea that there was a thin basis for doing it doesn't hold water, Barr says of the appointment of John Durham to go hunt for snipes. Because it wasn't started as a criminal investigation. Yes, we wanted to hold people accountable if something came up that indicated criminality or you could prove criminality, 
But it wasn't a criminal investigation. It was a review to get the story, and he got the story. Narrator, he didn't get the story. The L.A. Times piece makes Barr sound nuts. Makes him sound higher than a Chinese spy balloon over Montana which is the only rational explanation for his last conclusion in the L.A. Times piece. Quote, I think Durham's going to explain, to the extent he's allowed to put it out, the whole genesis of the Russia interference claims and how it all occurred. Well, here's hoping he tries under oath before a Senate committee. Barr, bigger idiot than his father. Never thought I'd say that. By the way, two corrections and two apologies. About yesterday's piece on the prospect that certain wording in the New York Times dishonest clearing of Trump on Russia on Halloween 2016 point to one of their sources being the just arrested ex-FBI agent Charlie McGonigal and whether McGonigal had a role in the Wiener laptop Comey letter timeline and if McGonigal might have been indicted in hopes of flipping him on something bigger. All that was, as I stated, the work of Greg Oliar, but I mispronounced his name, Oliar. And I called his piece Charlie's Angels. His piece is called Charlie's Angles. So among other things, I need new glasses and a less virulent spell check. Still ahead here, if you're going to embezzle, you have to keep your strength up. So embezzle chicken wings. Lots and lots of chicken wings. Like 100,000 chicken wings. Also, as the fascists desperately move to cage voters and suppress voting, What one impediment had they left out? Well, sadly to say, a Nebraska state senator just realized what that one impediment was, and she wants to impose it. Plus, I made the commercial, I fell off the rock, I bankrupted the company. That was a busy day. Things I promised not to tell. That's next. This is Countdown. Hey guys, it's Steve Cavino from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. 
With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Daylight savings time is starting up in most states. The goal to give all of us more daylight right through to November. With it, you may actually feel as if there are more hours in the day. But if you are hiring, it may actually feel like it's taking even longer to find qualified candidates. There is no daylight hiring time. There's only one way to find those qualified candidates. That way is ZipRecruiter. Right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com countdown. Daylight savings time or not, ZipRecruiter works round the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to more than 100 job sites so you reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter's smart technology also scans thousands of resumes quickly to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash countdown to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash countdown. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, One America News. This is the cheaper, sleazier, crazier version of Newsmax. Of course, Newsmax is the cheaper, sleazier, crazier version of Fox News. And of course, Fox News is the cheaper, sleazier, crazier version of reality. Since Paul Pelosi was attacked by a right-wing nut who intended to torture and kill Nancy Pelosi, OAN has, show after show, day after day, promulgated the various, they don't really hold together, but maybe we can just hate our way through the holes in them, conspiracy theories. Clearly, somebody at OAN has now gotten a phone call or a letter or they've talked to an actual lawyer because OAN has issued a statement to the CNN gadfly Daniel Dale, quote, With the release of the video and other evidence, it's clear that an unwanted intruder with evil intent broke into the Pelosi home. Mr. Pelosi's 911 call reveals an incredibly calm and highly intelligent victim trying to relay key information and asking for immediate help without further aggravating a mentally disturbed intruder. We wish Mr. Pelosi a speedy and full recovery. Translation? We wish Mr. Pelosi won't sue us. We wish Mr. Pelosi won't sue us. We wish Mr. Pelosi won't. Don't, please don't sue us. Please don't sue us. Please don't sue us. Solution? Sue them. The silver goes to Vera Little, former director of food services at Harvey School District 152 outside Chicago. Ms. Little has now been charged by Cook County prosecutors with embezzling. Sure, she stole about a million and a half dollars in taxpayer funds in about 19 months, but anybody can do that. What she did was to embezzle chicken wings. A lot of chicken wings. 
11,000 cases of chicken wings. Only during an audit by the school district business manager a year ago did they discover that at the halfway point of the business year, food services had exceeded its annual budget by $300,000. Apparently, Ms. Little just kept ordering more and more chicken wings, quote, massive quantities of chicken wings, and then going and picking them up herself at the factory. No word what she did with the 11,000 cases of chicken wings, nor where those cases are today, but there is a rumor that Ms. Little weighs more than 4,000 pounds. But our winner, State Senator Julie Slama of Nebraska. That's right, Slama, as in Phi Slama Jamma, the nickname of the basketball teams from the University of Houston in the early 80s. What, you would prefer her to use her married name? Her husband is named Lagrone. You prefer Senator Lagrone or Senator Slama Lagrone? Okay, now to the serious part. Just when you thought the fascists were out of fascisty ideas, no, sir, not hardly. Senator Slama has already introduced a bill to require voter ID in Nebraska, where they have had almost no voting problems for decades. Now she's introduced an amendment to that voter ID bill to aid early voting. And when I say aid, of course, I mean to stop early voting. Under Senator Slama's amendment, Senator Slama, American Legion Girls Nation, 2013, if you want to cast an early vote in Nebraska, you'd have to get it notarized by a notary public, not an online notary public, one in person in Nebraska, in rural Nebraska. If you're, say, 200 miles away from the nearest notary and you're in a wheelchair or something, and that's why you're voting by mail in the first place, tough. Nebraska State Senator Julie... Fi Slamma Jamma Mama wants to keep the minorities from voting, doesn't she? Today's worst person in the world! Hey, it's Friday. Fridays are when we do Fridays with Thurber. So, here's Thurber. Put on your daydreaming hats. James Thurber's best-known work, best-loved work, and maybe just best work has been made into two different films, neither of which is really satisfactory, but each gives you just a glimpse of what your imagination is doing as you hear or read his words. It is a universal. It is the story of everybody who's ever lived who has ever daydreamed. It is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty by James Thurber. We're going through! The commander's voice was like thin ice breaking. He wore his full-dress uniform with the heavily braided white cap pulled down rakishly over one cold gray eye. We can't make it, sir. It's spoiling for a hurricane if you ask me. I'm not asking you, Lieutenant Berg, said the commander. Throw on the power lights. Rev her up to 8,500. We're going through. The pounding of the cylinders increased. To pocket, to pocket, to pocket, to pocket, to pocket. The commander stared at the ice forming on the pilot window. He walked over and twisted a row of complicated dials. Switch on number eight auxiliary, he shouted. Switch on number eight auxiliary. 
repeated Lieutenant Berg. Full strength in number three turret, shouted the commander. Full strength in number three turret! The crew, bending to their various tasks in the huge, hurtling, eight-engined Navy hydroplane, looked at each other and grinned. The old man'll get us through, they said to one another. The old man ain't afraid of hell. Not so fast. You're driving too fast, said Mrs. Mitty. What are you driving so fast for? Hmm, said Walter Mitty. He looked at his wife in the seat beside him with shocked astonishment. She seemed grossly unfamiliar, like a strange woman who had yelled at him in a crowd. You're up to 55, she said. You know I don't like to go more than 40. You're up to 55. Walter Mitty drove on toward Waterbury in silence, the roaring of the SN-202 through the worst storm in 20 years of Navy flying, fading in the remote, intimate airways of his mind. Your tenth stop began, said Mrs. Mitty. It's one of your days. I wish you'd let Dr. Renshaw look you over. Walter Mitty stopped the car in front of the building where his wife went to have her hair done. Remember to get those overshoes while I'm having my hair done, she said. I don't need overshoes, said Mitty. She put her mirror back into her bag. We've been all through that, she said, getting out of the car. You're not a young man any longer. He raced the engine a little. Why don't you wear your gloves? Have you lost your gloves? Walter Mitty reached in a pocket and brought out the gloves. He put them on, but after she had turned and gone into the building and he had driven onto a red light, he took them off again. Pick it up, brother, snapped a cop as the light changed, and Mitty hastily pulled on his gloves and lurched ahead. He drove around the streets aimlessly for a time, and then he drove past the hospital on his way to the parking lot. "'It's the millionaire banker, Wellington Macmillan,' said the pretty nurse. "'Yes,' said Walter Mitty, removing his gloves slowly. "'Who has the case?' "'Dr. Renshaw and Dr. Renbow. But, "'But there are two specialists here, "'Dr. Remington from New York and Mr. Pritchard Mitford from London. "'He flew over.' "'A door opened down a long, cool corridor, "'and Dr. Renshaw came out. "'He looked distraught and haggard. "'Hello, Mitty,' he said. We're having the devil's own time with Macmillan, the millionaire banker and close personal friend of Roosevelt. Obstriosis of the ductal tract. Tertiary. Wish you'd take a look at him. Glad to, said Mitty. In the operating room, there were whispered introductions. Dr. Remington, Dr. Mitty, Mr. Richard Mitford, Dr. Mitty. I've read your book on streptothracosis, said Pritchard Mitford, shaking hands. A brilliant performance, sir. Thank you, said Walter Mitty. Didn't know you were in the States, Mitty, grumbled Remington. Coles to Newcastle bringing Mitford and me up here for a tertiary. You are very kind, said Mitty. A huge, complicated machine connected to the operating table with many tubes and wires began at this moment to go pocketa, pocketa, pocketa. The new anesthetizer is giving way, shouted an intern. There is no one in the East who knows how to fix it. "'Quiet, man,' said Mitty in a low, cool voice. He sprang to the machine, which was now going, "'Pocket-a-pocket-a-queep! "'Pocket-a-pocket-a-queep!' He began fingering delicately a roll of glistening dials. "'Give me a fountain pen,' he snapped. Someone handed him a fountain pen. He pulled a faulty piston out of the machine and inserted the pen in its place. "'That will hold for ten minutes,' he said. "'Get on with the operation.' 
A nurse hurried over and whispered to Renshaw, and Mitty saw the man turn pale. Coriopsis has set in, said Renshaw nervously. If you would take over, Mitty? Mitty looked at him, and at the craven figure of Benbow, who drank, and at the grave, uncertain faces of the two great specialists. If you wish, he said. They slipped a white gown on him. He adjusted a mask and drew on thin gloves. Nurses handed him shiny. Back it up, Mac. Look out for that Buick. Walter Mitty jammed on the brakes. Wrong lane, Mac, said the parking lot attendant, looking at Mitty closely. Gee, yeah, muttered Mitty. He began cautiously to back out of the lane marked exit only. Leave us sit there, said the attendant. I'll put her away. Mitty got out of the car. Hey, uh, better leave the key. Oh, said Mitty, handing the man the ignition key. The attendant vaulted into the car, backed it up with insolent skill, and put it where it belonged. They're so damn cocky, thought Walter Mitty, walking along Main Street. They think they know everything. Once, he had tried to take his chains off outside New Milford, and he got them wound around the axles. The man had to come out in a wrecking car and unwind them, a young, grinning garage man. Since then, Mrs. Mitty always made him drive to a garage to have the chains taken off. The next time, he thought, I'll wear my right arm in a sling. They won't grin at me then. I have my right arm in a sling, and they'll see I couldn't possibly take the chains off myself. He kicked at the slush on the sidewalk. Overshoes, he said to himself, and he began looking for a shoe store. When he came out into the street again with the overshoes and a box under his arm, Walter Mitty began to wonder what the other thing was his wife had told him to get. She had told him, twice, before they set out from their house for Waterbury. In a way, he hated these weekly trips to town. He was always getting something wrong. Kleenex, he thought, squibs? Razor blades? No. Toothpaste? Toothbrush? Bicarbonate? Carborundum? Initiative? Referendum? He gave it up. But she would remember it. Where's the what's-its-name? She would ask. Don't tell me you forgot the what's-its-name. A newsboy went by shouting something about the Waterbury trial. Perhaps this will refresh your memory. The district attorney suddenly thrust a heavy automatic at the quiet figure on the witness stand. Have you ever seen this before? Walter Mitty took the gun and examined it expertly. This is my Webley Vickers 50.80 he said calmly. An excited buzz ran around the courtroom. The judge rapped for order. You are a crack shot with any sort of firearms, I believe, said the district attorney insinuatingly. Objection, shouted Mitty's attorney. We have shown that the defendant could not have fired the shot. We have shown that he wore his right arm in a sling on the night of the 14th of July. Walter Mitty raised his hand briefly and the bickering attorneys were stilled. With any known make of gun, he said evenly, I could have killed Gregory Fitzhurst at 300 feet with my left hand. Pandemonium broke out in the courtroom. A woman's scream rose above the bedlam, and suddenly a lovely, dark-haired girl was in Walter Mitty's arms. The district attorney struck at her savagely. Without rising from his chair, Mitty let the man have it on the point of the chin. You miserable cur! Puppy Biscuit said Walter Mitty. He stopped walking, and the buildings of Waterbury rose up out of the misty courtroom and surrounded him again. A woman who was passing laughed. He said, Puppy Biscuit, 
she said to her companion. That man said puppy biscuit to himself. Walter Mitty hurried on. He went into an A&P, not the first one he came to, but a smaller one farther up the street. I want some biscuit for small young dogs, he said to the clerk. Any special brand, sir? The greatest pistol shot in the world, thought a moment. It says, puppies bark for it on the box, said Walter Mitty. His wife would be through at the hairdressers in 15 minutes, Mitty saw in looking at his watch, unless they had trouble drying it. Sometimes they had trouble drying it. She didn't like to get to the hotel first. She would want him to be there, waiting for her as usual. He found a big leather chair in the lobby facing a window, and he put the overshoes and the puppy biscuit on the floor beside it. He picked up an old copy of Liberty and sank down into the chair. Can Germany conquer the world through the air? Walter Mitty looked at the pictures of bombing planes and of ruined streets. The cannonading has got the wind up in young Raleigh, sir, said the sergeant. Captain Mitty looked at him through tousled hair. Get him to bed, he said wearily. With the others, I'll fly alone. But you can't, sir, said the sergeant anxiously. Takes two men to handle that bomber, and the Archies are pounding L out of the air. Von Rickman's circus is between here and Solier. Somebody's got to get that ammunition dump, said Mitty. I'm going over. Spot of brandy. He poured a drink for the sergeant and one for himself. War thundered and whined around the dugout and battered at the door. There was a rending of wood and splinters flew through the room. Bit of a near thing, said Captain Mitty carelessly. The box barrage is closing in, said the sergeant. We only live once, sergeant, said Mitty with his faint, fleeting smile. Or do we? He poured another brandy and tossed it off. Never seen a man could hold his brandy like you, sir, said the sergeant. Begging your pardon, sir. Captain Mitty stood up and strapped on his huge Webley Vickers automatic. It's 40 kilometers through L, sir, said the sergeant. Mitty finished one last brandy. After all, he said softly, what isn't? The pounding of the cannon increased. There was the rat-tat-tatting of the machine guns, and from somewhere came the menacing pocket a pocket a pocket a pocket a of the new flamethrowers. Walter Mitty walked to the door of the dugout, humming, Out pray de ma blonde. He turned and waved to the sergeant. Cheerio, he said. Something struck his shoulder. I've been looking all over this hotel for you, said Mrs. Mitty. Why do you have to hide in this old chair? How did you expect me to find you? Things close in, said Walter Mitty vaguely. What? Mrs. Mitty said, did you get the what's-its-name, the puppy biscuit? What's in that box? Overshoes, said Mitty. Couldn't you put them on on the star? I was thinking, said Walter Mitty. Does it ever occur to you that I am sometimes thinking? She looked at him. I'm going to take your temperature when I get you home, she said. They went out through the revolving doors that made a faintly derisive whistling sound when you pushed them. It was two blocks to the parking lot. At the drugstore on the corner, she said, Wait here for me. I forgot something. I won't be a minute. She was more than a minute. Walter Mitty lighted a cigarette. It began to rain, rain with sleet in it. He stood up against the wall of the drugstore, smoking. He put his shoulders back and his heels together. 
to hell with the handkerchief, said Walter Mitty scornfully. He took one last drag on his cigarette and snapped it away. Then with that faint, fleeting smile playing about his lips, he faced the firing squad, erect and motionless, proud and disdainful. Walter Mitty, the undefeated, inscrutable to the last. The Secret Life of Walter Mitty by James Thurber. Hey guys, it's Rich Davis from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Still ahead on Countdown, things I promise not to tell. It's one thing to make a pretty good TV commercial, something else altogether to make a pretty good TV commercial and fall off a cliff while you're doing it and bankrupt the company the commercial was for. I did all that. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need. You can help every dog has its day to Texas and Sweetheart, Big Dog Haven of Tennessee has taken over the care of Sweetheart, and she's going to need a lot of it. Sweetheart is one, a big, beautiful, light tan-colored shepherd, and Sweetheart has been shot, point blank, in the chest and the arm. A lung has collapsed, the arm was broken, her shoulder shattered, she was bleeding out, but despite this awful prognosis, she made it through her first surgery. She's stable enough that they can go now and try to repair the damage to the shoulder. With our help, 
You can find Sweetheart on Cuddly or on my Twitter feed. Your donations and retreats will truly help. I thank you. And of course, Sweetheart thanks you. Number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. And it was this time of year in 1996 when my agent called me at ESPN. There's an ad agency in Santa Monica. They just called me. Would you like to do two commercials for Boston Market? I answered with profound indifference. Okay. Would you like to do two commercials for Boston Market for $250,000? I believe my next words were, well, I can't do them today, but sure. They faxed me the scripts. They're actually pretty funny. Very well done. I think you'll like them. I believe my next next words were, if I don't have to kill anybody in them, call them back and say yes and get the money. Since the idea was these ads would run on sports telecasts, most of them on ESPN, my yes got back to management at ESPN pretty quickly. You can't do these, one of the executives explained dismissively. We don't let anybody do commercials. I laughed. Every one of us has done the, uh, the This Is Sports Center commercials. Some of us have written the This Is Sports Center commercials. You don't even give us days off for making them, let alone give us money. This is money I don't have to ask you for. The executive shook his head. Those aren't commercials. Those are promotional announcements. They're in your contract. Nobody here does commercials. I said, Chris Berman has done a beer commercial in three out of the last five Super Bowls. My commercial is just for food. Well, he's Berman. I pointed out I went to high school with him, and I was the star of their most popular program, a little thing called Sports Center. TV Guide had just named us one of the top 10 shows on TV. Shows, not sports shows. Us and Seinfeld. Sorry. Well, now I got a little angry, which never happened to me at ESPN, and I went to my ace in the hole. Uh, my contract expires in like 10 months, and you know I intend to leave. And during those 10 months, you're going to pay me about $260,000. So Boston Market is going to pay me $250,000 for two days' work instead of 10 months' work. Plus, they're going to take me out first class to L.A. for a couple of days, and they're probably going to do some radio spots, and I'll make another twenty-five grand. So you're giving me a choice? Make, say, $275,000 in like five days for them, or make $260,000 here between now and next September when I'm planning on leaving anyway? If you make me choose between those two, which do you expect me to choose? The executive coughed. We'll get back to you. An hour later, he got back to me by phone. Okay, we see your point, but there are still two problems. We can't just let everybody do commercials. I said, well, you know, why don't you just let anybody who went to the high school that Berman and I went to do commercials? He did not laugh at that. Well, how about only your regular weekday sports center anchors get to do commercials? There was a grunt and a maybe. Then we got to the gist of the real problem. Here's the real problem. People on your show, they'll be resentful. And I said, why would they be resentful? Because the production assistants are expecting that they're going to get their own commercials too? And I said, how about this? The day I'm out there actually shooting the commercial, I will get Boston Market to like... Cater dinner for the show staff, even if I have to pay for it myself. There was a long silence. 
Would management be included in that? And can we get all the side dishes too? I swear to God. So off I flew at the beginning of December during a winter that had gone frigid in October in Bristol, Connecticut. The next thing I knew, I was on the beach in Malibu at Leo Carrillo State Park. The crew is complaining because it is raining lightly and only about 55 degrees to me, fresh from the hinterlands. And having not been back to L.A. since I had moved out in 1992, it's like I'm in Tahiti. And my agent was right. The scripts were funny and original. They were a send-up of the old Calvin Klein obsession perfume commercials. They're two extremely thin models, and they are filmed writhing in frustration on the beach, on the big rock outcroppings at Leo Carrillo State Park. She is supposed to say, emptiness. How can I fill this empty void of emptiness? They are in black and white, but I emerge from behind a rock or wherever. I'm in color. They are in black and white. And I say, when they say they don't know what to do about this emptiness, I say, eat something. I then sell the sandwich. Then it cuts to a shot of me walking them down the beach with my arm over each of their shoulders, telling them eating is a good thing. And who's wearing cologne or who likes sports or other stupid things like that for a quarter of a million dollars. Well, we start this at 8 a.m., and the producer and the director, John, say to me and the two models and the crew, look, this rain is just going to get heavier as the day goes on. So what we want to do is not take a break for lunch. We'll just shoot until, like, 2 p.m., and then you can have lunch or you can take your lunch with you, and you'll all get paid for a full day. And everybody agrees. The actress agrees, and she swears as she agrees. The actress is named Una, Una is from Chicago, and it will soon prove Una swears more than a longshoreman. This blanking cold can blank my blanking blank. To be fair, Una and the guy are dressed in Calvin Klein rags, and they are there, and they are from there, and they are freezing, while I am wearing a production company brand new suit and shoes, and to me it feels like it's Tahiti. We take a couple of hours where we do all the shots where I emerge from behind the rocks or go around the rocks or over the rocks or I look over the rocks. And the director finally says, okay, we got five good options. Let's set up for the walk down the beach with your arms around each other's shoulders. By now, it's noon or 1230. And as they move the cameras and the rain starts to move from a mist to like a light rain, two prop guys bring out rakes. And I'm sitting with the crew, and I've been asking them questions all morning in between takes about how this is all being arranged and made and lit. And I say, rakes? What do you need rakes for in a commercial? And they say, you'll see. And then each time me and Una and the guy walk down the beach and the director says, cut, we go back to the starting point. Now, out come two stagehands with rakes, and they rake the sand on the beach smooth. And I say, oh, footprints. So each time I walk down this damp beach with the rain just a little harder than it was the take before in my brand new dress shoes, what I'm basically doing is polishing the soles of these brand new shoes on damp sand. I mean, by the time the director John says we are done, these soles of these shoes are so shiny, I could go ice skating in these shoes. And John comes over and he says, listen, we got another half an hour. Can we go back and try a new way for you to appear on the rocks? I mean, can you can you climb rocks at all? And I say, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm surprisingly good at it. You wouldn't think so, but I can climb rocks. 
and he points to one rock outcropping on the beach. Maybe it's 18, 20 feet high. And he says, try to climb up that and go as high as you can. If there's nothing that'll support you, we'll forget it. And I try, and sure enough, I get up near the top, and there is a perfect little shelf in the rock that I can comfortably stand on. And the director points the camera up, and he says, oh, damn, the angle's too tough. I can't swing the camera down fast enough for when you say eat something so I can refocus on the models. It won't work. Is there anything lower on the rock where you could stand? Can you come down at all? And I said, I think so. I think I can come down a little bit. Well, little did I know. Sure enough, maybe nine, ten feet from the beach, up in the sky, there is another little foothold on this rock outcropping. It is not big enough for me to put both my feet on it, but I say, if you don't mind me holding on to the rock as I say eat something, I can do it from here. And the director says, okay, let's try it. And I climb down the rock, and he's moving the camera, and I put my left foot on this flat part, which is nine or ten feet up from the beach, and for a couple of seconds, everything is fine. I'm good. And that's when I feel that my left shoe, my brand new left shoe, straight from the Floorshine catalog, bright and shiny, and now having been polished by four hours of walking up and down on a wet beach, complete with two guys there to rake the beach and make sure it is as shiny as it possibly can be, my left shoe, slipperier than a diamond, is now moving of its own accord. I'm holding. I'm doing a good rock climbing job, but the shoe, the shoe is not holding. Hey, I say with some alarm, I'm about to fall off. I hit the sand no more than five seconds later. So that's about a 16 foot drop from my head to the beach. And for weeks, for years, still to this day, it has amazed me more than anything else that happened. It has amazed me how much went through my mind before I crashed. In fact, before I actually fell. I know I did a quick height calculation. Yeah, 15, 16 feet. I recognized that the outcropping was so vertical that I was unlikely to hit any of the rock on the way down. But just the same, I remembered that the rocks continued under the sand, see? I took two years of geology. And this was going to be a hard landing, more amazingly than all that, though, I had taken judo as a kid. I hated every minute of judo. 1965, 1966, so 26 and 27 years before we shot this commercial. I was in the studio, the judo studio in White Plains, New York, the day of the 1965 Northeast Blackout. And the only happy memory of the entire judo experience I had was when our instructor, Bob DeRocher, locked us in the dojo that had been converted from a store that had a front door that was set in several feet from the street so they could put display cases up. And now it's pitch black, so he went out and got his Volkswagen Carmen Ghia, drove it up over the sidewalk into that set-in entryway of this converted storefront. He put his high beams on. He flooded the dojo with enough light that we kids could change out of our judo stuff and back into our regular clothes and wait for our parents to come get us. He did a great job. I didn't like the judo so much, but his blackout operations practice was superb. 
So now, with all of this having gone through my head in a second, I began to fall, and everything else from that year of once-a-week judo classes comes back to me. Relax as you drop. The more of your body that hits, the less you'll get hurt. Hands protect the head. Drop like a sack of sand. I did not hit the sand, per se. I kind of splattered on my left side. As I rolled over onto my back and took a breath and sat up, Of all people, Una was the first to race over to me. You want some blank and tea? I said, "Uh, no, no, thanks. Let me let me see if I'm dead. The grips tried to help me to my feet, but I felt some very sharp pain that which suggested we should slow down. The problem was, though, even if I needed an ambulance, there was no way to get one down to where we were shooting. As that rock outcropping that I had just fallen from suggested, I like to call it a cliff every now and again. Leo Carrillo State Park had a real cliff in it and a flight of stairs. I mean, 100 steps, 200 steps up to Pacific Coast Highway and a park. Sure enough, I was able to stand, but I couldn't move easily. Everything hurt. So the two biggest members of the crew let me drape my arms over their shoulders exactly the way I had draped my arms over their shoulders of the models during the beach shot. I stopped for a second. Hey, Ona, you sure you don't want to franken-carry me up the stairs? She said with genuine sincerity, Now that's blank and funny. Seemed to me like it took about a month to get up those stairs. I assumed there would be an ambulance waiting by this point. Instead, there was a park ranger. This is a state park. I have to see you first. Then I have to call the fire department. I said, well, this pain on my side here, this feels like fire, but I don't think it's actually fire. He called the fire department. They showed up. They assessed me. They called the ambulance. At some point, probably when I was being half dragged up the steps, something happened on the impact side. If I now tried to lower my left arm from way above my head, I got severe shooting, burning pain from my left armpit to about my left knee. Cleverly... I figured out not to do that. Keep your left arm above your head, and it won't hurt. I used the restroom in the ranger station. There was no blood, so no kidney damage. I'm okay. It does, however, hurt, and something could be broken. Now I go back outside, my arm above my head, like I'm signaling for a cab on the streets of New York City. And the ambulance shows up, and the EMTs tell me to get on their gurney, and I said, I I can't. I can't lower my arm unless I want excruciating pain. I can't move my arm. I have to stay in this position looking like, like a flamenco dancer. But I said, listen, can you lock the wheels on this gurney? And they said, sure we can. Of course we can. And I said, just lock the wheels, and I'll just back up onto the end of it, and I'll fall backwards. And it worked. And so, with my left arm still extended over my head, they loaded me into the ambulance. Apparently, when I fell from that rock, or cliff, as I call it, it looked like I had been shot. 50, 60 people on a commercial crew. The shooting day is over. They have missed lunch. There is a very nice catered lunch sitting there. And they told me later that everybody was so disturbed by what happened to me that only three people even took something to go. And no, the director was not filming as I fell, sadly. So we hit every pothole on Pacific Coast Highway on the trip from the beach to the hospital. 
I call my agent from my cell phone. She laughed. I called ESPN, actually to check on the catered dinner. Oh, what's new? Oh, I fell off a cliff shooting the commercial. They laughed. And I'm lying there in the emergency room waiting for x-rays when my cell phone rings again. And I reach into my left pocket and I had the phone halfway to my ear when I realized my left side does not hurt anymore. At all. It does not hurt at all. Well, that was a quick recovery. I sat up. My left side felt fine. In fact, it felt great. And a nurse came over and suggested I should lie back down again. I said, why? Somehow I got better on the trip from all the potholes and just lying here. In fact, I feel great. Did you guys remove my left leg while I wasn't looking? Did you replace it with the left leg that I had when I was 12? Because I could hop back to Connecticut on my left leg right now and just cancel the flight. She laughed. She said, no. What I was feeling would be the morphine they gave me so they could twist me around and take the x-rays they needed. And I said, please never, ever give me any more of that ever again. Thank you. My judo flashback, as it turned out, had done the job. I had broken nothing. The ER doctor complimented me on my fall, and he said I probably had six or eight different sprains on my left side. It would hurt, but it would keep getting better, and I'd be able to make my flight home the day after next. He was completely right, although I now found uh, 25 years later that it's beginning to hurt like I just fell off the cliff. Anyway, I went back to the hotel. I ate well. I slept well. I managed to walk around with the help of a cane, and I went back for day two of the commercial shoot. This one is in a mansion in Pasadena, a room teeming full of unas lying on the floor. They're photographed through chandeliers. They're lazy, rich kids who also need to be told to eat something. I arrived and walked into applause from the crew, and I delivered a well-rehearsed line. And now for my next trick which is when the director, John, came over and apologized, and he said he thought this entry into shot for me would be way easier. What I had to do was lie on the floor, then sit up and deliver the line, eat something. If you can sit up, he said, that is. If, if you can't, we, we can do something else. Can you sit up? And I thought about it, and I rubbed my lower back, and I said, based on the day so far, yeah, I could, but probably only six or seven times. And, and I, I said, well, I, I can sit up. It's clear to me one of those bad sprains was in the muscles somewhere of my lower back. And if I try to lay back down, I lose control. I'll just crash back to the floor. That actually happened getting out of bed this morning. So after each take, the same two guys who had walked me up the stairs after I fell at the beach gently held my arms and shoulders and lowered me back to lying on the floor. We got what we needed. I went back to the hotel. I had dinner with some friends. The next day I was a little sore, but perfectly fine to get back on the plane east. And sure enough, only time ever I had a west to east tailwind. The flight from LAX to Newark took three hours and 48 minutes. We traversed the country like a dart shot from a gun or an Olbermann falling from a rock outcropping. Oh, by the way, the commercial was an immediate success, unlike any that Boston Market had ever done before. In those days, they were packed each night for dinner at every location, selling half chickens and full meals with potatoes and salads, and they were getting an average of $12 out of every customer. The rest of the day, the place was empty. The idea behind my commercials, they were designed to bring in a lunch crowd, a sandwich and a soda and a bag of chips for $4. 
Soon they were swamped at lunchtime. Boston Market ordered three more commercials, these to be shot in a studio in New York. They offered me 50 grand a day. An entire new career vista was opening in front of me. I was, for a week or two in early 1997, the most successful male commercial actor in the country. We shot those three spots. I interrupted a grunge concert to shout, eat something at the band, and then I got carried off by the crowd in a mosh pit. And I interrupted a Romeo soap opera surgeon coming on to his nurse by rising from the operating table to shout, eat something. And then we did something with ball players at the stadium on Randall's Island. And I remember nothing of that because unlike the first two, they never edited the film because that's when it happened. Their equivalent of falling off the cliff. I will confess it had not occurred to me. Then again, I did not own Boston Market. I did not work for their marketing department. I did not run the ad agency they employed. But none of them anticipated it either. After the first few weeks of giddy glee about the lunch crowds, I had brought them. Somebody noticed something unfortunate and unexpected. Basically, for every $4 lunch they were now selling, they were selling one fewer $12 dinner. They had not gained any new customers. They had just managed to get their customers to each spend $8 less. These very well-made, very memorable commercials worked very, very well. And the problem with that was each time they did work, it cost Boston Market $8. By the end of 1997, Boston Market was something like $900 million in debt. It had filed for bankruptcy and it had been taken over by McDonald's. On the other hand, I got my money. And in the 25 years plus since, Boston Market has not once used a celebrity endorser to try to sell their food. Oh, and there was one other positive outcome. I'm actually very proud of this. The ad agency got the award in question. I did not, so I don't know which group gave it to us. But that Eat Something campaign actually won an award because somehow my shouting Eat Something at Una and the other waif-thin models, somehow that cut through to at least some victims of eating disorders. The Boston Market Eat Something ad campaign for which I fell off a cliff. Okay, a rock outcropping. For which I fell off a rock outcropping. Got an award from a National Bulimia Association. Countdown has come to you from the studios of Alderman Broadcasting Empire World Headquarters in the Sports Capsule Building in New York. Thanks for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme, here from Beethoven's Ninth, arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis and appears courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Stevie Van Zant. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 759th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. 
The next scheduled countdown is Monday. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 you know what i'm saying like it could have been like easier and a lot of people have asked me like how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple and what else was it gonna like that's what the song wanted thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline hey sarah i love that spring break vlog you posted on zigazoo omg you watched it yeah it was so cool I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.